Hi, this is Dr. David, and uh, I just want to welcome you back to episode five of Fresh Start with Dr. David, the Apple podcast that helps you get the best value in terms of your health, your wellness, your mental health, and other aspects of your life. So I just want to welcome you back. Um, uh, just to recap, um, the reason for this podcast is to help uh, people in terms of how they navigate mental health in this country, mental health and wellness, how they navigate medicine and just healthcare in general, and me sharing some of my ideas and thoughts and concepts about what we can do to improve mental health in this country and to also improve how healthcare works um, in this country. Um, I don't really necessarily talk about a lot of my credentials on these podcasts, but on this one, um, I'll just tell you a little bit about my uh, credentials and my history and things like that. Although you can read more about it on my websites or, you know, on the back covers of my books and things like that. But basically, in college, I was pre-med and pre-law. Um, I triple majored in biology, philosophy, and psychology. Um, and I minored in chemistry and sociology. And... Um, and actually, uh, even though I only walked once, um, my uh, university, the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, didn't have a dual, dual degree or double degree program. So I technically graduated with a double dual degree, but they didn't really have a program. Uh, but uh, the uh, the registrar at the time recognized that, and she actually let me walk twice. So I actually got to walk twice, which was, was cool, because I was told that was one of the few people who's ever gotten a chance to do that in the history of the school. But Anyway, let's just say that I was ambitious and um, I wanted to pursue a lot of different things. I also worked full-time all through college. And, and, and just as a nugget to anybody with children uh, who are approaching college or young children or whatever, uh, I would strongly recommend that you not allow your kids to work during college and certainly not during grad school. And the reason why is this. They're going to be competing against kids uh, and young adults just as intelligent as they are, just as hardworking or more hardworking as they are who don't work. And so that 20 hours, 30 hours a week comes up to 100 hours a month or 120 hours a month or more. And that's the difference between somebody who gets into one program and who doesn't. So, and the, the little money that you earn as a student won't make up for that. So I always say to people, uh, my clients who have children in high school, in college, in grad school, don't let them work. Let them use that time and that energy for their education, for their academic pursuits, because they're going to be competing with people who are just as smart, just as hardworking, just as industrious, just as creative, just as productive who don't. And you just can't afford to lose that time. You need it. And your job during those stages is to learn to be a student, um, and to be academically successful so you can reach your goal. So um, anyway, I'll just, I just wanted to add that in real quick. Um, so uh, that's a little bit about my background uh, early on during college. After college, I actually went to law school in Europe. Um, and then I came back to the United States. I um, went, applied to medical school. I'd already, actually, I'd already applied to medical school. I went to medical school. I graduated from medical school. During medical school, I did three master's degrees back-to-back. -back. And that's, this probably helps explain a lot about 
why I do what I do, how I approach things, the topics. But I did three master's degrees back to back. Um, I did a master's in health services administration, um, which is kind of a cross between an MBA uh, and an MPH, um, which is a master's in public health. So I did that uh, during medical school. And then I did an MBA in healthcare management and administration. Uh, and then I did a master's degree in management. So that kind of gives you some context about why I approach things the way that I do, the way that I look at things, why I look at things in from different perspectives compared to other MDs. And, um, and it probably explains partially part of the reason why I did, I chose not to pursue or, uh, I chose to pursue kind of a different path in terms of what I do, uh, what I practice, what I don't practice and that kind of thing. So anyway, that's a little bit about my background. Um, I started my first practice, MLC of Greater Atlanta, in 2016, followed by my second practice, Atlanta Coaching and Hypnotherapy Associates, in 2019. And then I started Atlanta um, Atlanta Health and Wellness Coaching, uh, Atlanta Small Business Incubator, and Atlanta Academic Achievement all last year. Uh, so those are, those are practices that kind of augment and kind of integrate the other things that I do. So those are little things about my practice. I look at things conceptually. Uh, I also look at things practically, and I kind of try to tie those two things together, conceptuality with um, practicality. And I think that will help lead to better results. So that's kind of a little bit about me. Um, I tend to look at things a little bit differently from other MDs. Um, and I think that that gives me um, gives me some advantages in terms of promoting solutions because um, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of MDs who practice medicine, which I don't, I don't practice medicine, I don't practice psychiatry. Uh, I use, I do life coaching, hypnosis, hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioral techniques, and a host of other things that are outside the box uh, that are proactive, preventative, but also help people address issues and move through them uh, long term by building mental muscles. I do that, um, and in psychiatry and in medicine in general, a lot of uh, providers, a lot of physicians don't look outside the box. And if something doesn't meet this and this exact kind of thing, it gets overlooked, it gets missed, people get shuffled from provider to provider, nobody can figure out what's going on. Sometimes they even get told that it's in their head when it's not. And it just leads to a lot of different things. And so part of the reason why I do what I do and why I'm doing this podcast is because there aren't a lot of answers. And even though we're kind of just got out of a pandemic, maybe still in a pandemic, who knows? It's not like we've heard anything from the government or the task force that was set up for COVID. People are just kind of in the dark. And, and that's not how it should work in this country. People should not be in the dark about mental health. They should not be in the dark about health and wellness or medicine. They shouldn't be in the dark about are we in a pandemic or aren't we? We, you know, we pay taxes for this stuff. We should know the state of things. And it's complete chaos and people don't want know what to do. Uh, and so they're all over the place. And you see people doing this and you see people doing that. You see some people who, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to zone in on anybody, but, you know, you'll see people who wear a mask in a situation where it completely makes no sense at all. 
somebody who's like in the middle of a field somewhere or in you know on the beach by themselves and it's just like okay what are we doing here but people and i don't blame them um but people just don't know what to do because we're not getting any public direction so public health is seems to be in a lot of ways completely non-communicative and sadly that's how medicine operates in this country in a lot of ways people professionals just don't communicate things Patients don't get told about things that they need to be told about, and people are just in the dark, and they don't know what to do, so they do the best that they can, and, and, and I totally get that. So that's part of the, another reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I want people to kind of understand some things behind the scenes and get a sense of um, some of the variables at play that affect the care that they receive, whether it's mental health care or just general health and wellness care, which we call medicine in this country. So anyway, um, that's that. Um, the last podcast that I did was about kind of the variables associated with uh, mental health and wellness in this country and, and, you know, based on the type of approach somebody takes, whether they seek out self-help uh, or whether they try to, you know, fix things themselves or whether they seek out therapy or counseling or whether they seek out medications to address their issues or whether they seek out a holistic integrative functional psychoanalytic psychodynamic approach or approaches that I offer at my practices so that's what the last podcast was about and then the previous podcasts were about depression which is huge uh, about return on investment or ROI which is basically looking at what you put in compared to what you get out of life improvement health mental health, wellness, all those things. And then there was the introductory one. Um, I also will be doing some future podcasts about anxiety, about panic attacks uh, and panic disorder, about PTSD and trauma. So definitely stay tuned. I'll be talking about a lot of different things, and I plan uh, to do tons of shows. So uh, hopefully I'll do at least one show on some topic that you have a huge interest in whether it's self-improvement or a psychiatric condition or a medical condition or things like that. One of the things I'll just say, too, uh, and this, there's a little bit about this in my book, The Nutrient Diet, um, but there were some recent um, um, correlations or data that came out that talked about um, the use of relaxers in women of color and the incidence of cancer, and I believe... I, I haven't read all the data yet, but I believe it was it was uterine cancer. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But it was some kind of uh, gynecological cancer associated uh, with the use of relaxers. And I just kind of want to say this, which is something that I think is huge that's missed in medicine. I think medicine is trying to address it in some ways, but medicine's not really good at it. But there are a lot of autoimmune conditions out there um, that people were previously told that it was in their head. Uh, and I could just go down the list: rheumatoid arthritis. But now we know that now we know that there are some key things that you can look at, some genetic markers and you know antibodies and things like that. Uh, MS. I could go down the list of different things. Um, but people commonly present in healthcare with things that we haven't defined, we don't fully understand, and sadly, a lot of medical professionals and physicians tell them that it's in their head, and it's not. So one thing I always tell my clients, um, if you believe that something is going on with your body, 
trust yourself and trust your body, right? Now, if you don't trust yourself, you don't trust your body, then that's a slightly different story. And if you come to my office, we can work through it and kind of get somewhere and move forward and point you in the right direction about what doctor you need to go to, what specialist you need to see, or what your next step should be. But I always tell people, trust your gut instinct. Trust what you think it is, and don't let anybody tell you that it's in your head uh, when it comes to medical symptoms. Now, there are some psychiatric disorders and some psychiatric symptoms that, that can be more, uh, I hate to use the phrase, in your head compared to others, but a lot of times it's not the case. And so if you go, if somebody tells you that, you know, this is in your head, you're not feeling it, whatever, get a second opinion, check it out with somebody else, come to my office, um, and we'll look at it strategically and logically and see if we can figure out what's going on. But trust yourself, trust your body, trust your body, and learn to trust your body. You know, uh, learn to know the difference between what this is, you're feeling this because of this, or you're feeling this because of something else. And that comes, part of that comes with experience. But trust yourself and trust your body. Uh, and don't, you know, don't allow somebody to tell you that something's in your head or it's delusional or things like that. Uh, now, like I said, there are some delusional disorders and there's some states where people have delusions. But, you know, if you don't have a history of that, if that's not the case with you, then try to seek out uh, uh, alternate opinions and things like that, you know. Because if you look at medicine and if you look at history, there's a million conditions out there where people were initially told that it was in their head and now we know that it wasn't. And, and, and that's just sad and that shouldn't happen. Uh, and... I, you know, I won't go into like gaslighting or if that's gaslighting or not, but that just shouldn't happen, you know. And sadly, a lot of people are being told that just because the physician doesn't know what to say or they don't have an answer. So because they don't have an answer, you have a problem. And that's bad. Uh, I, I remember when the Golden Girls did an episode about that. Uh, and it was really a really good episode, uh, a really, really good episode. But it's been the case more than one time where someone's gone from physician to physician to physician and being told that something is in their head, that they don't have it, it doesn't exist. And then later on they found out that a virus caused it. Uh, so that's just common. We don't know everything in medicine. People who pretend to know everything are lying, lying to you and lying to themselves probably. And it's just not the case. So trust yourself, trust your body. Get second opinion, a third opinion if you need it, and explore some other option to see what's going on. Um, but the other concept I would give that goes along with um, that recent uh, finding is this. Whatever you put in your body, your body has to do something with it, right? 100% of the time, right? And that's true whether you're talking about relaxers or you're talking about uh, hand sanitizer, which a lot of hand sanitizers contain alcohol and other ingredients, or if you're talking about hair dyes, or if you're talking about dyes and foods like cereals, or if you're talking about Botox or something else. Whatever you put in your body, your body does something with it, right? And generally, that whatever you put in your body is going to reach somewhere. It's going to reach, you know, it, when I think about relaxers, uh, hair relaxers and, and products that go in the hair, well, what's the closest organ? The brain. So... Who knows what's leaking into some part of the brain or the blood system connected to the brain or, you know, so just think about some of those things, just kind of common logical things that make sense. 
You know, if you put something on your hair, you put something in your head and it seeps into your scalp, well, where is it going to go? Well, gee, the face, the facial area, those arteries, those lymph nodes, you know, it just kind of makes sense. Um, and the same is true with Botox, honestly. You know, if you put something, a drug, a chemical like Botox in your body, your body has to do something with it, right? And it's probably the case, if it's a chemical or a drug or something, that your body's going to have to metabolize it um, or detoxify it or something, do something with it metabolically. And generally speaking, that occurs in one of about three or four places, uh, maybe a little bit more depending on how technical you want to be. But, you know, your gut has to deal with it. Um, your liver might have to deal with it. Your kidneys might have to deal with it. Your pancreas, gallbladder, things like that. Those organs, those organs that detoxify things and uh, emulsify things and make things inert or change the chemical structure of things. So just think about that. If you're putting something in your body, regardless of what it is, tainted water, um, coffee, um, a relaxer, a chemical, an herb, a supplement, whatever, your body has to do something with it. So just, just consider that uh, in things and um, just know that the more things that you put in your body that your body may not like, the more likely it is that your body's going to mount an immune response to that or that that chemical or whatever that species of chemical is might actually do some damage to your body. So just keep that in mind. Uh, and that's why you should do your best to try to live cleanly as possible. Now, I'll be the first one to say that I haven't fully lived, lived, lived cleanly. Uh, I'm human. I make mistakes. I put things in my body that I shouldn't. We all do. Nobody's perfect. But do the best that you can. Don't let the lack of perfection be the enemy of doing better and improvement. So try to do better one day at a time, whether it's drinking or smoking or eating or vitamins or supplements or exercise or anything else. Try to do better. Make your goal doing better, right? And, um, you know, obviously, if you need help with that, feel free to reach out to my office. Um, so I'm going to get started with the topic for today. Today's topic is medical treatment, diagnosis, and management. So this is an, a, an episode that's all about healthcare and medical diagnoses, treatment, and management issues, specifically in our healthcare system, right? Uh, and I'm just going to go through about 10 variables that affect that and just give you some ideas about that. And I kind of, I kind of um, forementioned some things that I'm going to talk about you know, when I talked about this, the, the new finding about the use of, of certain hair products and relaxers and, and dyes and chemicals and things like that. Um, and then when I mentioned things about Botox and, you know, any, any kind of thing that you put in your, um, in your system, dyes, chemicals, things like that. Um, but I'm going to talk about some of the, the variables involved with that. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, and I'd also say this too, um, um, I bring up a lot of these issues in my book, The Nutrient Diet. So definitely check out The Nutrient Diet. Um, you know, the first half of the book talks about the metabolism, the physiology, the biochemistry, 
uh, of the things that you put in your body, what your body does with them, and what you should do. Um, and it goes from water to sugars to proteins to fats and oils to uh, proteins and amino acids to alcohol to carbs and ketones and everything else. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is about the psychology of eating behaviors, impulse control, and why we do the things that we do when it comes to food and how to change it. So I think it's the first book of its kind to do that. So definitely check out the book. And even in the book, I do talk about uh, cleaner living and I talk about autoimmune conditions and things like that and how the things that you put in your body, your body has to do something with it. Your body can use it. Your body can get rid of it. Your body can use it and get rid of it. Your body might actually fight it, right? So, and that's where autoimmune conditions come in. So uh, proactivity is the best approach. And so take accountability or learn to take accountability uh, and responsibility for what you put in your body, good or bad, by getting the knowledge that you need about what it does. And the Nutrient Diet on Amazon um, is a great way to do that. So I'm going to start off uh, with this uh, about medical treatment, medical diagnosis, and management of health conditions. So I've kind of come up with a list, uh, a short list of about 10 different things that are important uh, to consider when you're talking about um, your interactions with the healthcare system, because that's that's all that is, right? When I say healthcare, medical diagnosis, treatment, management issues in America, I'm really just talking about what's your experience with healthcare in America, right? Is it good? Is it bad? How does it work? What are the variables involved? And that's what I'm talking about. So I narrowed it down to about 10 issues, right? And I'm just going to go down the list and talk a little bit about each one, and then I'll offer up some solutions. Um, and then we'll kind of end. So number one, patient-client presentation. I talked a little bit about this in the previous uh, podcast, but um, how you present as a patient or a client is really, really important. And, you know, everybody presents differently. Um, and I'll just kind of throw out an example. You might have two people with the exact same disease process, the same stage of that disease or disorder, the same symptoms, and one person might present one way and another person might present another way. So you might have two people with, you know, X, Y, or Z problem. Uh, you might have two people and one is a, let's say, a 55-year-old white male. And the other one is an 18-year-old African-American female, you know, or Asian-American female, or even an 18-year-old white female. Those two or those comparisons are going to be very, very different. The way that a 55-year-old white male with some kind of condition might present might be completely different from the way that an 18-year-old white female might present or an 18-year-old Hispanic or Asian or African-American female. So you have to take that into consideration. Uh, and that certainly is going to affect how you're treated, how you're diagnosed, and how you're managed with some health symptom uh, condition or disorder. The next thing, number two on the list, cultural factors and biases, right? Um, so how you present culturally matters in how you're treated, but how um, the person who's assessing you perceives you makes a big difference too. And there are a lot of studies uh, and research out there that show, for instance, that African-Americans 
who have presented with somatic symptoms of pain were given less uh, relief than other patients. Um, I guess maybe one of the blessings in disguise of this is, is maybe that group of patients were less likely to have been prescribed high doses of opioids and less likely to develop an addiction to things like hydrocodone and oxycodone and oxycontin and things like that. So that's maybe a secondary blessing of that. But generally speaking, a lot of times certain races and certain groups and certain age ranges, et cetera, um, are treated differently even though they have the same disease process, including things like pain. And they're given less treatment, less therapy, less relief because of that. Um, and so that makes a big difference. And it doesn't just depend on the demographics of the patient. It also depends on the demographics of the person who they present to, the physician, the specialist, the provider, the surgeon, et cetera. Right? Number three on the list, the knowledge and skill of the provider. So that's a big thing, the knowledge and skill of the physician that you go to see. How knowledgeable are they? How skilled are they? Do they look outside the box? Are they only thinking of four or five things? I remember um, uh, um, a few years ago, uh, I developed this skin problem, and I would just itch all the time. And I went from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. Nobody could figure out what was going on. Uh, one um, one dermatologist even tried to say that I had delusional parasitosis and I was so, so mad. Um, I remember, um, you know, just kind of uh, my reaction to that. And I'm like, okay, so because you can't find something underneath your little microscope, you put it back on me and say it's in my head. Okay. Um, you know, I don't think so, but whatever. Um, but that happens a lot of times. So, um, you know, in in that case, I think it was a, it was a uh, kind of an example of projection uh, or displacement. So because he couldn't figure out what was going on, then he put it back on me, you know. Um, and this is way back in 2014, 2015. And uh, I was like, uh, okay. But I think that happens to a lot of people in healthcare where they're told it's in their head or they're told that, you know, you know, it's uh, delusional, et cetera. And it generally probably isn't but that's just how our system works. So the knowledge and skill of the provider makes a difference. Uh, and if you don't have a knowledgeable and skilled provider, you could get diagnosed with the wrong thing, or you could be diagnosed with something you don't have at all, uh, or you could get not diagnosed with what you do have. So there's so many different combinations of that, but knowledge and skill of the provider matter. The training experience of the provider, that goes hand in hand with knowledge and skill. And so the training that that person received, their experience, um, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, going to uh, a psychiatrist or you're talking about going to uh, a cardiologist or whatever, do you want to go to somebody who's been practicing for 30 or 40 years uh, and may not keep up with the latest things? They may, they may not. Or somebody who just got out of school who knows about the latest things but doesn't necessarily have as much experience. So you just never know. Uh, hopefully you find something right in the middle. Somebody who has experience uh, and knowledge um, but also um, keeps on top of the newest developments and things like that. Um, the next thing, clinical decision-making abilities and factors. So 
That's just somebody's ability to make logical decisions uh, and come to logical conclusions based on the data that's presented to them or how you present to them. And so is that person making logical decisions based on your presentation? And you know, part of that goes back to training and experience, knowledge and skill, but it also is uh, a reflection of cultural factors and biases, right? Next on the list, efficacy and compliance. So efficacy and compliance, efficacy is how well something works, right? So if a treatment, if one treatment option is efficacious versus another, right? So which one is more efficacious for mild depressive symptoms, going to a therapist uh, or a life coach or going to a psychiatrist and getting a medication? You know, those differ. Um, and then compliance. Compliance basically is how well you as a client or a patient stick with the treatment plan. So do you take your medications daily um, or you know, weekly or however it's prescribed, or do you do the things that you're supposed to do outside the office? Um, kind of an example of compliance is a lot of times when people present with uh, high blood pressure, also known as hypertension, you know, they'll kind of go through this thing where I call it bargaining um, at its later stages, but basically, you know, before I wanna, you know, be on a medication for high blood pressure, X, Y, or Z, you know, let me try and lower my blood pressure using diet and drinking more water and exercising and things like that. And most people do that. I did it. You know, I think my, my blood pressure first started kind of raising uh, that I could notice um, during medical school. And it took me a few years before I was, you know, ready to go and make medications and, you know, kind of accepted it. But, um, you know, I eventually did, and I'm glad that I did. But compliance makes a big difference. And whether the person's being honest, whether they're saying one thing in the office and then something else. You know, I think a lot of people, just some of the work that I've done in consulting, um, and I've seen a lot of people who said that they were on or taking an antidepressant daily, and they probably weren't. I didn't, you know, who knows whether they were or not, but I didn't think that they were. But a lot of people do that. Um a lot of people say that they're taking something and they really aren't, or they're just taking it sporadically. And a lot of medications, especially when you're talking about psychiatric, psychotropic medications, you have to take it daily because you're not going to have plasma levels that are high enough to do what it's what the medication is supposed to do, which is also called efficacy, if you don't take it daily. So a lot of people do that, and, and they're just not going to get the effect that they want or expect by just taking it sporadically. And that's true with antidepressants and, and, and other medications like that, right? The next thing, number seven, disease management and remission cure. So is the disease process that you have being managed well? Are you in remission for that condition? Has a cure um, been provided? And, um, you know, a lot of things affect that. The efficacy, obviously, the compliance, um, do you perceive that it's working? So, um, and is it really working? So those kind of things come into to play there. Um, the next thing on the list, number eight, diagnostic management and treatment costs. You know, how much does it cost? Can you afford it? You know, I think I saw on the news this morning where they were talking about the cost of insulin. And they said that, you know, because of the cost of insulin and, and shortages or, you know, whatever, inflation, 
um, that people were, you know, rationing their insulin because it was costing them a thousand dollars a month to pay for insulin. And I mean, I totally get that. That makes sense. Um, you know, um, most people don't have an extra thousand dollars to spend on a healthcare expense. Uh, and so that makes a big difference in how people perceive the treatment and whether they follow through and things like that. Are they having to go for a ton of follow-up visits or, you know, do they have five, six different specialists? It makes a difference. Uh, especially, you know, if they're paying for their healthcare insurance every month and then they've got, you know, six $80 co-pays every couple of months, plus the treatment and things like that, it gets really, really expensive. And, you know, a lot of people end up in bankruptcy or completely broke because of medical and healthcare costs. And, and that's sad. And it shouldn't be like that. Uh, the next thing on the, the list, number nine, patient experience and satisfaction. Sadly, in healthcare, we don't really do a good job of, gauge, of gauging that, especially on an outpatient uh, private practice basis. So if you go to the hospital, if you go to Piedmont, you go to Emory, you go to Wellstar, um, and you have, you, you know, for a procedure or as an inpatient or to the ER or something like that, you might receive a, a patient satisfaction survey or something asking you about your care. But here's the thing. A lot of those surveys aren't well designed and they don't really get the true get to the true heart of your experience at the hospital. So number one, even if you do go to a facility where they ask you about your experience and your satisfaction um, and your opinions about that healthcare experience, they don't do a good job of asking the right questions. They ask questions that make them that are designed to make them look good, which is sad. But that's a lot of times what it's about. Patient satisfaction surveys and data should be used to bring out a better experience for you as a patient, not just to make the organization look good. And sadly, that's just kind of organizational interest in making themselves look good and getting more patients and producing more revenues and things like that. But at least they do it on an outpatient basis in private practice. Few practices do that. Few practices send out uh, satisfaction surveys, ask people or ask clients what their perception is of the experience, what it is, um, what it's like, what they like, what they don't like. Most, you know, practices just don't do that at all. Uh, and I think part of the reason why, sadly, is because most physicians, most MDs, most healthcare providers, professionals are overworked. And it's just like one extra thing for them to do. At a hospital, they can afford to hire a department to do that. You know, um, performance improvement teams and things like that that they have from administration, from the executive part of, uh, of the hospital or the healthcare um, organization can do that. In private practice, most people can't afford to do that. And it's a lot of extra work. You have to design good surveys. You have to send them out. You have to tabulate the data things like that. And even once you get the data back, you may not be able to afford to make changes. So it's hard to do that on an outpatient basis. So I, you know, I think that in terms of, you know, private practice physicians, you know, we should probably give them a little bit of a break in that department just because it's so hard, so expensive to do it from doctors and private practice who are already being asked to do so many different things just to get part of their money back from the insurance companies. Uh, and that brings up a whole different conversation and podcast, which I'll, I'm sure I'll do in the near future 
And one thing I can say, though, I think in terms of insurance companies, they do do surveys, and a lot of people aren't happy with their experience with their insurers. Now, some people are. It depends on the organization and the person and what their reasons are uh, for going to that provider or to that uh, insurer or that healthcare system or whatever that their insurance company is paying for. But I think a lot of people aren't aren't happy with the health insurance that they have, especially when it comes to mental health services. So a lot of, it's only in recent years that, that mental health services have been even covered by insurance. In a lot of cases, it wasn't even covered. Uh, so that's just a recent development in terms of American healthcare and maybe, you know, the last 10, 20 years, uh, 20, 10, 20, 30 years, um, for a long time, they weren't covered at all. And they're certainly a lot of times not covered at the same rate or percentage that other things are provided. And they should be. Um, whether you go to, you know, your physician for, you know, a tummy ache or gastroenteritis or a skin problem or for depression, it, it should be both. All those things should be covered at the same rate. You shouldn't have to pay more for a mental health issue. That's ridiculous. Uh, and I think that's just part of bias and stigmatization of mental health. Um, so nobody should pay more for that. And then the last thing on my list, number 10, is clinical outcomes and long-term results. And that's basically asking the question, did the treatment and management efforts work? Did they work? Did the diagnosis, treatment, and management of whatever your condition was or your symptom was or your disorder, whatever it was, your complaint, did, was it successful? Did it work, right? And then I break that down into kind of three uh, minor categories. Did it work in the short term, right? Did it work in the long term? And did it work for a lifetime? Um, and obviously, the last, uh, the last one brings in the concept of was something in remission? Did it come back later? Did it reemerge in some other way? That kind of thing. Uh, and some diseases, especially autoimmune conditions, cancers, things like that do tend to come back. Um, and, you know, that's, that's part of the experience of the patient. So let me just kind of go down that list again. And these are variables to consider in terms of healthcare and medical diagnosis, treatment, and management in this country. Number one, patient-client presentation. Number two, cultural factors and biases. Number three, knowledge and skill of the provider. Number four, training and experience of the provider. Number five, clinical decision-making abilities and factors. Number six, efficacy and compliance. Number seven, disease management and remission slash cure. Number eight, diagnostic management and treatment costs and expenses. Number nine, patient experience and patient satisfaction. And then number 10, clinical outcomes and results. In other words, did the treatment and management efforts work in the short term, in the long term, and for a lifetime. Um, so now I'm just gonna kind of talk a, a little bit about solutions. Um, here's, here's some solutions that I would recommend to you when you present in healthcare. Number one, if you have a problem, write it down, right? Write it down, write, if it's a symptom, write down when it shows up. Be really, really specific. That way when you present to a provider, you've got a concise, concise story about what's going on. You're not guessing and you're not forgetting to tell the doctor something 
uh, when you go in. A lot of people do that. They go in, they kind of think that they know what they want to say, and then they get in and they forget to say something and they have to book another appointment or whatever. Whatever problem that you're having, whatever symptom you have, write it down, write a statement, write it on your computer, compose up a statement about it. Well, this is what's happening and it seems to happen after I do this or before I do this and it lasts for about 30 minutes or it lasts two hours or it lasts two days and then after that, this might happen and then this makes it go away, this makes it better, this makes it worse, things like that. So be really, really specific and have a statement or you know, something that you've written Know exactly what you want to say, and I promise you, if you do that, some details, some little details that may make a difference clinically to the provider when you present to them uh, are going to come out. So the more verbose, com comprehensive, and complete you are about explaining what's going on, the better job you're going to allow them to do in trying to f figure out what's going on. Um, something else, uh, you know, be picky about the people the people you pick as, as providers, you know, do your research, um, you know, be picky about who you, you pick. And then if you don't have a good experience, find another provider. Um, you know, you don't have to go to the provider that you happen to present to pick another provider. Um, some of the other things that I would recommend that you do, um, in terms of uh, if you're given a treatment, if you have a side effect or if there's something you experience, write it down. Keep a journal. Keep a journal of what's going on with you and your body, and that way you kind of know and you have a timeline. So that way, if, if something was tried and it didn't work, you can kind of explain, well, it kind of seemed to work for a couple of days, and then it seemed to not work, and then when we tried this, it worked better, things like that. If you have a journal, especially if it's something that's long-term and ongoing and, and really bothersome, keep a journal of it. Um, effic efficacy and compliance. That's really, really important. Um, you know, be communicative, uh, communicative with your provider if the treatment and therapy are working and if they're not working. And be honest with them. Don't just say something to make them feel good. Be honest. If something's not working, say it. If it has a side effect that you can't deal with, say it. And also be compliant. Um, you know, make sure that you're religious about it. You know, in terms of like the supplements that I take daily, the, the daily multivitamins that I take daily, my blood pressure medication, I have 100% compliance. I put everything in the same place. I take it at the same time every morning. And I'm just 100% compliant about it. Um, and I'm especially that way about blood pressure medications because, you know, what what's the worst thing that can happen from high blood pressure? Well, you can have a stroke for one, you know, um, so I don't want to have a stroke. I've seen clients who have strokes. It's, it, it, you know, it's tough. So you want to be preventive and proactive. And so if you're on a medication, especially one that you take for a chronic medical condition, make sure you take it daily and develop a system. Maybe you need a pill counter. Maybe you need to build in reminders. Maybe you need an alarm clock for your medications. Maybe you need to all, put them all in the same place. You need to use post-it notes or a to-do list or whatever. Uh, but do whatever you need to do to take whatever you need to take on a regular basis. Be compliant. Um, because with a lot of medications, you can't just skip a dose and it's going to work. Um, you know That's true of psychiatric medications, uh, especially antidepressants. 
It is true with medications for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. It's true for medications that are used to treat infections and things like that. Um, and especially with infections, you know, if you don't, if you're not completely compliant with the treatment, it may not work and you could create basically uh, a drug resistant form of the disease process. That's definitely something you don't want. It happens all the time when people don't, you know, they feel a little bit better and they just stop taking the medications. So don't do that. Uh, and if you have, or if you're tempted to do that, check with your doctor, check with your provider uh, to see if that's okay. It's probably not okay, but check with them. Uh, the next thing, disease management and remission cure, you know, uh, and I guess this goes back to communication too. Um, you know, whatever is going on with your disease or your disorder or your symptoms, communicate that with the healthcare team. Uh, communicate with them on a regular basis. And if you don't like the way that your disease or your condition or your symptoms are being managed, um, get a second opinion. You know, you're always welcome to get a second opinion. And it's it's it might be good to have a second set of eyes or even a third set of eyes. I've seen people do that. Um, I had a I won't mention who it is, but I had a, a, a really a good friend in medical school, and she she struggled with some issues. I heard some people say, oh, this is in her head, or she's using this to get out of exams. She went to doctor to doctor, racked up a whole bunch of medical bills, only to find out later that she had Lyme disease. And she went to all these specialists at Emory and Piedmont and everywhere else, and nobody could figure out what was going on. And I mean, these are smart, intelligent doctors she went to. Nobody could figure it out. I can't remember how much she, I remember her telling me how much it cost her. But, you know, people didn't believe her. They said it was in her head, all these things. She was having all these these uh, attacks. These, her stomach would just start hurting and all these kind of things. It was Lyme disease. And she found out from um, a doctor that she went to that was recommended by a relative. And um, that's what it was. And all these people told her it was in her head or that you know, she, she was trying to get out of exams and things like that. Nope, it was Lyme disease. And it happens all the time because Lyme disease causes symptoms all over the body. Um, and Lyme, Lyme disease is an infectious process. So a lot of infectious process, things that are har har uh, harbored by ticks and viruses and things like that, tend to cause uh, problems with organ systems throughout the body not just one. And when that happens, it's harder for physicians to figure out what's going on, especially if there are a bunch of telltale signs. So get a second opinion, get a third opinion, trust your gut instincts, things like that. Number thing, number, uh, the other thing too, the next thing is in terms of your satisfaction, be honest with, with your physician. Uh, if you're not having a good experience, tell them. If you had a, a, a bad experience, with a nurse or somebody in their office, let them know about it. Be honest with it. I remember there was a, a, a provider that I went to for my health care, and, and there was a, a nurse or a medical assistant, I can't remember which one in his office, who would take my blood pressure. And she would always go, oh, it's 120 or 80. And a couple of times I said, that's a lie. And you shouldn't be just telling me lies about my, this is my health here. She kept saying that over and over. And I knew my blood pressure was, number one, 120 over 80 is a perfect number. So most people aren't going to be a perfect 120 over 80. They're going to be you know, 118 over 76, or they're going to be 126 
over 84, whatever, you know, those types of things. But most people aren't going to be 120 over 80 every single visit. I just knew that that was wrong. And, you know, at the time I had finished with medical school um, and I knew my blood pressure was, I wasn't on medications at that time and my blood pressure was high. And then he would check it and say, oh, you're, you know, your blood pressure is 140 over. And I'm like, so what was the point in her taking my blood pressure? She just lied. And here's the thing. That same nurse or MA had lied to patients all day long. And, and, and that's just not right. Somebody should catch things like that. You know, somebody could end up with a stroke because she's just making up numbers. And there are people like that in healthcare. They don't care whether you get, they're just there to collect a paycheck. And they're incompetent. And they don't care if you end up with a stroke because of their incompetence or not. Um, so that's another thing. You know, if somebody tells you a number for blood pressure or something like that, and you don't believe it, every single time when you go to the doctor and you have high blood pressure and every single time the nurse or medical assistant takes your blood pressure and they're like, oh, it's 128, you're perfect. Yeah, probably not. Um, have the doctor take it or get a second opinion or go somewhere else, honestly. If that's the experience that you're having, then your your interest as a patient is not being kept uh, in high regard, and you're just a number. You're just a chart number. You're just a medical record number, and you don't you deserve better than that, right? Um, and the other thing too is when you are given uh, options, think about what's going to be the best for you in the long term and in your lifetime, right? Um, that was number ten on my list. So think about it, you know, the options that I'm being given, are those just short-term, are those long-term, or are those lifetime? You know, think about those things, and just think about it also in terms of the benefit, the cost-benefit ratio, which, you know, I did a full episode about called ROI, return on my investment. From what I'm putting in, what am I getting out? Um, and I think I raised this in the last podcast episode in terms of therapy, there are people who will go to the same therapist and they'll chat and, you know, this and that. And they'll go to this therapist uh, or counselor or psychologist or whatever, you know, once a month, twice a month, for a year, for two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And they're at the exact same place when they started. And they haven't looked at the long-term costs, the fact that they've spent for, you know, dollars $20,000, $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 spread out over many years and got nowhere. So think about the return on your investment. And sometimes you might have to invest more at the beginning, up front, to get more in the long term, in the end, and in your lifetime. So with that, I'm going to wrap up today. Just keep in mind, trust your gut instinct, do your due diligence, and make good investments in your health your mental health, your diet, your nutrition, and your wellness. So thanks again for tuning in. This is the Fresh Start with Dr. David Podcast. Take care.